Good morning. If you haven't already done so, please, while I'm fiddling with this, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we're, we're nearing the end of John's Gospel. Look there, beginning in verse 30. John writes, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Thus saith the Lord. Would you bow with me again in prayer? Oh, Father, we thank you for what has been written. And Father, we ask you to do what we just read in this place today. We pray, Lord, that your Son would be believed on. That he would be believed on, Father. And that the result would be life for those believing. We need you to do this, Lord. You alone can do it. You alone can give faith to make us alive from the dead. And you alone can give faith to your people to strengthen our hearts to continue believing. And so, Lord, we ask you to do it. We need you to do it. We're counting on you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. As we near the end of John's gospel, we, we have a, a little bit further to go. I think uh, we'll, we'll make it through the end of the month, I think. That's uh, something we've seen throughout our sermon series. So John has labored very carefully in the construction of his gospel. As he's given us an account of the person and work of Christ, he's done so with some distinction from the other gospels. The other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels in part because of the ways that their, that their content overlaps and in the way that they share a similar sort of ground up focus and presentation of Christ's life. But John in his gospel, he, he begins not with the birth of Christ, not with a genealogy and not even really as Mark's gospel begins with the assertion that the man who had just arrived on the scene is in fact the Son of God. All of the Gospels unfold and affirm Christ's deity and his identity as the Son of God. But, but John, he begins in eternity past. He begins by presenting Jesus the Word, 
as the eternal, preexistent, glorious second person of the Trinity, the creator God. He presents Jesus as the one who existed before time itself and through whom all things were made. It's in the first sentences of this gospel. And then John labors through a series of, of very carefully selected signs and events in the life of Jesus. And, and we just read in verse 30, Johnny just told us that there were many other things that Jesus did which could have been written. And at the outset, you think, John, well, wouldn't all of those things have been helpful to record? And wouldn't it be quite convincing if, as you say in this verse, there were, there were many things, many more things that you could have written? And as you say in the last verse of this book that we'll look at at the end of the month, that all of the things that Jesus had done, they were, they were so great in number that if you were to write them down in detail, the world wouldn't even be able to hold all of the books. Wouldn't the hardest and most unbelieving heart be crushed under the weight, the sheer volume of things that Jesus did? Wouldn't it convince even the most ardent unbeliever that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Son of God, all of these many things. And yet we've come to the place in John's gospel where he tells us why he has written what he has written. He tells us why he's written the gospel in this way with these specific miracles and these specific interactions and events in Jesus' life, why he uses the specific allusions to the Old Testament that he does and the structure of his book and the way that everything is laid out. He, he, and, he, and he tells us the point of his entire gospel. And so this morning, as we consider these two verses, we have two points, just two, and I think John has two points, and it's in probably what I to me, seems like one of the clearest passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. And I'm sorry to say, Jordan didn't come up with the title, Believe and Live. He didn't make that up. That's John's title. John's desire through what has been written is that you would believe something and receive something. His desire is that you would believe in the Lord Jesus and that you would live. And so let's, let's begin this morning under this first broad heading of believe. That's the call, right? 31, these things have been written so that, purpose, you may believe, dot, dot, dot. The central motivating call in John's gospel is an appeal to faith. It is an appeal to belief. And John, he, he certainly aims at the encouragement of those who are already believing, but in his gospel, he has a very clear and plain evangelistic appeal to those who are not believing in Christ. At the outset, in verse 30, he begins with the word therefore, and that connects what he's saying to the previous thought in verse 29. And Jordan preached last week where Jesus said, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. You see, John, he's, he's writing to a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles in and around Ephesus, probably sometime around or after 70 AD in a Greco-Roman culture. So there's probably roughly at minimum 35 to 40 years that have passed since the events in Jesus' life were recorded in this gospel, that are recorded in this gospel. None of the people that he's writing to were present when Jesus appeared to the disciples as was described in what Jordan preached last week. None of them. None of these people saw the nail prints in his hands. None of the readers of John's gospel placed their, their hand into Jesus' side. None of them were there to see any of the many, verse 30 tells us, other signs which Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, the things not written in this book. 
They didn't get to see those things and John didn't record those things. And so it's important that when, when Jesus was speaking to Thomas and, and, and he asked, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. And then verse 30 begins with therefore. Yes, Jesus did other stuff too, but here's the emphasis. I wrote these things so that you, you right here, right now, didn't see any of that based on what's right in front of you may believe. John's desire is that you would be numbered among the blessed who even though you were not there to see with your hands or see with your physical eyes, you didn't touch the nail prints in his hands, you didn't put your hand into his side, that nevertheless there is being held out to you this morning the full blessedness, the full happiness, the full satisfaction in receiving what has been written right in front of you. Don't get caught up thinking if I'd only seen him, if I'd only been there, or if there, if there was something else, if only there was something else, some other evidence, some other proof, something else that could convince you of his claims, if only you had more evidence, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, God has given us a perfect and beautiful and glorious account that is sufficient to place you this morning, right now, among those Jesus calls blessed. As you read and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John wants you to believe. As we proceed under this first broad heading of John's desire for his readers to believe, this is John's purpose in writing this gospel, then the most important question that rises to the surface is, what is belief? What is belief in John's gospel? And specifically, in what does he want his readers to believe? Is John simply asking for intellectual affirmation? The acknowledgement of certain truths about Jesus? Is John asking for cold hard facts regarding Christ's identity as the Son of God? Is John asking us to affirm truths about Jesus with intensity and deep felt sincerity? What does he mean? Thankfully, we don't have to try to conjure up what John means by belief because he's demonstrated throughout his gospel exactly what he means by belief. This is important because something we see in John's gospel is that there's a kind of belief in Jesus that is a saving belief but there's also a kind of belief that is not genuine, trusting, saving faith in Christ. So again, under this broad heading of belief, I want you to go with me now. So we just try to do a brief survey of, of John's understanding and really his presentation of what it means to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God in this gospel. I'm gonna list several passage, passages of scripture from, from John's gospel. You don't have to, to turn to each one of these, but if you're taking notes, uh, write them down, uh, make a note, go back and uh, look at these for yourself. And this will be, this will be relatively, relatively quick. I was aiming for six pages. I got nine, so. Um, In chapter one, beginning in verse 10, I'm just gonna read the, the text. It says, he, Jesus, was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. 
he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So first, I want you to hear that language there, the language John uses of believing in his name in those opening verses of his gospel. And he, he makes a contrast of those believing in Jesus as those who, who recognized and received Christ when he came. And it's, it's a contrast with those who, when he came, they didn't. They didn't know him. They didn't understand. They couldn't see him. They didn't recognize Jesus and they would not receive Christ when he came into the world. And that, that theme is really, that's, that's going to be the kind of what you see play out through the whole rest of the gospel when you see those who believe and those who are unbelieving. It's the distinguishing factor for, uh, between those who possess genuine belief and those who do not. You, you, you see those who, who are described as believing as possessing an understanding. There are facts involved here. There's an understanding, but also a, a willing reception a taking in, a receiving in of Christ's identity as the Son of God and embracing him for it, receiving his word as, as the truth of God and acknowledging his divine sonship. Respecting his divine sonship. On the contrary, we see throughout John's gospel, there are those they don't, who don't believe, who do not recognize him. They deny his claims to be the son of God. They do not know him and they will not believe in his name. We see this distinction, for example, in chapter two, when Jesus, he performed the first miracle at the wedding in Cana where he turned the water into wine and uh, his disciples at that manifestation of his glory, it says they believed on him. But then right after this, he goes into the temple during Passover and he makes this declaration of his resurrection power and all his people, they just reject him. They won't have him. Not gonna receive him. Belief in John's gospel, belief in Jesus as the Christ, it involves a hearing and a seeing and a recognizing and a receiving of Christ to be who he claimed to be. But John, he, he writes more in chapter three. Again, you don't have to turn there, just write these down. In chapter three, John, he gives us probably the most famous verse of all time, which is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What a glorious promise. It should be the most famous verse of all time. But that verse, it's said in the context of a conversation Jesus is having with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And before John records verse 16, he tells us what Jesus said in verses 14 and 15, where Jesus points Nicodemus back to a familiar incident in his Bible, and he gives Nicodemus a master class on what it means to believe. And there's a call for him to direct that belief toward himself, Jesus. Jesus records, John records the words of Jesus there in chapter three, verse 14 saying, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. The Lord, he appealed to that account in the Old Testament instance in which the people, they had sinned grievously against God and, and, and yet, though the people were experiencing judgment, God made provision. He made life-giving provision for the deadly effects of their sin. And Jesus, he used that account where so clearly it was illustrated for them that we, that you, are sin sick and that in order to receive the healing that you need, that you must look away, 
You must look outside of yourself upon the provision of God in hope and in faith and in trust and in obedience in order to receive that healing. And Jesus said, just like that serpent was lifted up in the wilderness so that whoever looked on it would live, even so I'm gonna be lifted up, he said. So that whoever, like get that in your mind's eye, Nicodemus, so that when that happens to me, whoever will do that to me, that person will have eternal life. Belief in John's gospel is a gaze set outward, away from self, fixed upon an external object in hope and in trust and in faith. That your redemption is, it's, it's in that thing over there. It's not in here, in you. Your confidence is in something completely external to you. John writes still more at the end of chapter three where John, John the Baptist, different John, John the Baptist's words are being recorded by John the Apostle. They're being written down. He says in verse 36 of chapter three, that John the Baptist said, he who believes in the Son, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Same John that wrote our sermon text this morning wrote, down those words as they were spoken. John's call in our sermon text this morning, he's not interested in intellectual assent. He isn't concerned that you repeat the words that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, as though merely reciting the words or even acknowledging that they're true or even doing so really, really hard and sincerely has any power in and of itself. The kind of belief John is talking about is manifested in obedience to the Son of God. Obedience. He who does not obey the Son will not see life. If your belief in Jesus is not accompanied by a repenting, turning from sin, obedience to the Son of God, an obedience to Him as you're actively turning from sin as you trust Him, then your belief is not the kind of belief that John wants you to have. He tells us that Genuine belief manifests itself in obedience and that those who do not obey, those who do not believe, remain under God's wrath. He who believes has life, but he who does not obey will not see life. I want to jump ahead to chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, still considering what John means by believe. Says John writes, beginning in verse 31, <clears throat> so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, okay, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Jesus said that to a group of Jews who had believed in him. And yet if you know the end of chapter eight, just a few moments after this, they're gonna pick up stones and try to kill him. 
But wait a minute, I thought they believed. Well, you see, though they had believed in him, when he tells them plainly that he is in fact the very God who spoke to Abraham, their belief vanishes into thin air. In John's gospel, genuine belief, the kind of belief that that John appeals to for his reader, it's a belief that keeps believing. It's a persevering belief. It's a belief that continues, Jesus said, in his word and proves to be his disciple. And hear this, it's not a belief that withers and vanishes when Jesus challenges your sin and your unbelief and your conceptions about how he ought to be positioned in your life and how he ought to exercise his authority in your life. When Jesus calls you to obedience and your belief vanishes, that is not saving faith. That is not the belief that that John is talking about. Again, consider John chapter nine. Moving on, the man born blind. After a man being healed by Jesus, he was born blind, he was cast out by the Jews, they didn't believe even that he'd been born blind. But this man, this healed man, though he had been blind and never physically seen Jesus, John tells us that he understood plainly who Jesus was. Isn't that interesting? We get all hung up over how we will or won't or whether we will or won't believe in Jesus. You got people that ain't even got eyes in their head, can see him clearer than you can and I can. This man never saw Jesus and yet he knew exactly who he was. John tells us in chapter nine, verse 35, that Jesus went and found that man after he'd been cast out for telling the truth about Jesus. And Jesus asked him these words, do you believe in the Son of Man? This is so good. The man replied by asking, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And then there in verse 38 of chapter nine, it says that that man said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. He worshiped him. John knows what he's writing when he tells us that his purpose is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He wrote chapter nine that this man said, Lord, I believe, and that the result of that faith, that belief, was that he worshiped Jesus. Belief in John's gospel, it's not merely about acknowledging truths about Jesus, it's about the worship of the Son of God. True biblical belief, it's about bowing your knee to Jesus in joyful surrender. It's about the trust of Christ's person and work penetrating so deeply in your soul that even if you don't have eyes in your head, you can't not see. And you're unable to do anything in response except Worship the object of your belief, your hope, your trust, this Jesus. John's call to believe is a call to worship. I wanna take a, a moment and try to apply this to our own hearts. Do, do you get tripped up and discouraged because of how deeply you feel the inadequacy of your own belief? Do you feel like your belief is about an inch tall? And do you question your salvation because of how poorly it appears in your own eyes that you're believing upon the Lord Jesus? Do you wonder if your belief is actual belief at all? 
You wonder if, you, if you're believing hard enough. Do you wonder how someone with a belief that seems as inadequate and as pitiful as yours could truly be believing? And to those thoughts, I just want to say, praise God, that when John writes of belief in his gospel, the thing he's calling us to, that he's not writing of belief in terms of intensity or completeness or perfection or willpower. Genuine belief is not just believing really hard or really intensely or hard enough or enough that God will be happy with me, and yet those are the very things that we so often look at as the measure of the genuineness of our belief. And I think the reason why people like, like Robert Murray McShane said, said things like, for every look you take at self, take 10 looks at Jesus, and for why people like Pastor Rick are constantly asking you, are you gazing, are you gazing, are you gazing? It's because it's so hard to get our eyes off of our belief and to re-affix them continually upon the object of our belief. You say, I just don't know if I believe. And I say, let me, let me tell you, there's far more lacking in the strength of your belief than you know. And that's good news because your strength of belief is not what's required. The good news is that there is absolutely nothing lacking in the one upon whom you are called to believe. Let us examine not our belief, but our Savior. Has Jesus any less power to save? Is there anything lacking in what he promises? Has Jesus ever held out to you anything but the hope and the promise of saving grace? Is there any insufficiency in his substitutionary death to take away the guilt of your sin? Is there any insufficiency in the glorious perfection of his righteousness to be given to you, imputed to you? Any insufficiency? Is his resurrection God's statement and assurance to the entire world that Jesus is the Son of God? Is his resurrection the assurance that all who hope in him will also be raised? In the history of the, of the cosmos, has there ever been a better promise than what Jesus offers you in the gospel? Does Jesus promise? I'm not asking if you believe it really hard. I'm asking, did he promise? to receive all who come to him in humble faith. There's no such thing as proud faith. That's not faith. Is there any other savior like the Lord Jesus? Can any be compared with him? Is there any other God who has moved heaven and earth and entered his own creation so that he could provide the very thing that he requires of his people for the purpose of redeeming them, saving them? There is nobody like this God. Do you want to know how to fight for faith? How to fight for belief? You need to put down the mirror in which you're constantly examining the various imperfections of your belief. To paraphrase Spurgeon very loosely, this is not a direct quote, but I think this is what he meant. So I might just be making this up, but I think it's true. You weep because you don't weep over your sin adequately. You sorrow because you don't sorrow over your sin adequately. Your heart is melted with fear because you think your heart is too hard. Your heart is broken to think that it does not break over sin. Don't you understand why the weakness of your faith is so bitter to you? You know you ought to believe more. You want to believe more. You hate your struggle with sin and doubt. You long to be free from sin. You desire 
to desire Jesus and you mourn that you desire him so little. I say again, put down the mirror in which you're examining the imperfections of your belief and pick up the mirror of God's word, these things that have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And you need to put these pictures of this, of this glorious Christ in front of your face. There are more pictures of him, more images of him, more glory to be seen, his perfection, his work on our behalf than you can digest in a lifetime. That's why John wrote this, so that you can believe. So now, as we enter into our second and final point, we need to do that very thing. We need to set our eyes upon the glories of Christ and look at this one thing, just this one, that John tells us that Christ provides when we believe upon him. I stated at the outset, John's aim is twofold. He wants us to believe something, but he also wants us to receive something. So again, back in our sermon text, I hope we never left, but in our sermon text this morning, verse 31, it says, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. If there's a promise being made by our culture and our world today, whether it be some other religion, some political candidate, some political philosophy, a social media influencer, the fitness and health industry, all of the various things being held out to us that are meant to comfort and satisfy and bring health or whatever. I think it's fair to say these things, they could be summed up by the promise of holding out life. If you vote this way, if you eat this food, if you have this exercise routine, if you watch this news channel, if we have this or that president, if you have the right amount of safety and security, then all will be well and your heart will be allowed to rest. You'll be happy. You'll be satisfied. You'll have, you'll have life. And yet for all of the promises for life, our culture and our world remain inescapably bound to death. The ravages of sin are everywhere. Tommy, he talked a little bit about some of those this morning. You mentioned some of those. We see them. They're in front of our face every day. And the ravages of sin were everywhere when John wrote this gospel. And these people, they had the same desires in the heart, the same longing for satisfaction, the same longing for life. And here we see that Johnny calls his readers to faith in the Son of God so that in his name you may have life, real life, true life. And so again, we're not going to take as much time as we did on the, on the first point, but, but just as we ask, what does John mean by believe? And in what does he want us to believe? What does he mean by life? And it would be very easy to assume that I know what he means by that. Just like it would be very easy to assume I, I know what he means by believe. I need to let John tell me what he means by these things. And so we're going to do the same thing very, very quickly, much quicker. Uh, we're just going to look at a few of the things that John says in his gospel as he lays out for us and describes what he means when he says Life. So the first thing we need to know about life in John's gospel is 
in the very first verses of his book. Again, you don't have to turn there. Chapter one in the prologue where John, he tells us about this son of God, the word who was with God and and was God apart from whom nothing came into being. Jesus Christ is our creator God. He's awesome. Jesus, very God of very God. And John writes in verse four of chapter one saying, in him was life. Jesus Christ, the one that Thomas exclaimed in our text in last week's sermon, exclaimed, my Lord and my God. John tells us in the first sentences of his gospel that he is the very source of life. He possesses life in himself. So that at the outset, there's there's no other outlet, there's no other place to look for life. than in the one who possesses life in himself. He wants you to have the life that Christ offers, which he alone can give, because he alone possesses it in himself. So that's, that's what, what is in view first, the life that God possesses and gives. But also in John chapters three and four, Jesus speaks of something else when he, when he talks about the life that, that believers receive. In, in John three and four, he speaks of giving spiritual life from the dead, the new birth. Think John three, you must be born again. The life that John talks about, it's, it's born again life. It is sinner made alive from the dead life. It's the, the kind of life that uh, causes a sinner to stop loving the darkness and to practice the truth and to come to the life, or come to the light. John's talking about spiritual life that makes a sinner alive to God. You get that when you believe on Jesus. He gives you that. Not only that, but in John 5, in verse 24, Jesus said, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life there it is, life, and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. There we see life described not as, or as not coming into judgment. In other words, for John, eternal life, not only is it life that exists in God himself, not only is it spiritual life, but it, but it is freed from the guilt of your sin life. It is peace with the judge life. It means peace with God. To have eternal life means that the guilt of your sin has been removed so that when you stand before God, it will not be in the place of judgment. Life, what you get, it means the forgiveness of your sin. Instagram doesn't offer you that. Our culture doesn't offer you that. Nothing can offer you that. Not only that, but in life in John's gospel is also the promise of physical resurrection life. In chapter six, Jesus said in verse 40 of chapter six, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, comma, and I myself will raise him up on the last day, physical resurrection life. In chapter 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. When John writes that his desire for you is to have life in Jesus' name, he also has in view physical resurrection life. But there's more. John, the life that he has in mind in his gospel also, it's a life that can never be taken away. He says in chapter 10, beginning in verse 28, that Jesus, he gives eternal life to his people and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Mm, He goes on to say, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
you can try and think about that for a minute and think, well, whose hand are we in? Are we in Jesus' hand? It almost sounds like the son has got a hand on you and the father's got a hand on you and in some weird way it's the same hand, but it's not. But you are held onto by God. He has got you. Your life is secure and as solid as the grip of almighty God upon your heart and soul. You are his. This is a life that once given can never, 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 ever be taken away from you. This life does not end, it does not stop. It is eternal life. <clears throat> Excuse me. Not only all of the, the things that we've mentioned, and I know we can, we can go through just line by line, we've done it through sermons and we can see all the things that, that, that John means when he says believe and when he says life. But in John chapter 17, in Christ's high priestly prayer, we see Jesus say the most beautiful words that you will ever hear. He said that the Father had given him authority over all flesh, that all who had been given to him, he may give eternal life. And then Jesus says in verse three of John 17, hear it, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent that they may know you, that they may know you, God. This is eternal life that you may know and fellowship with the glorious triune God. This is why you were made. It is to know and to love and to trust and enjoy and fellowship with and worship the only true God. You get to know the friend of sinners. The one who walked in the garden in the cool of the day to fellowship with his people. <clears throat> John wants you to have life in Jesus' name. And if you want something other than this, it's not life. The things our culture is selling you are a lie. You don't get to define life. Our culture doesn't get to define life. And hear me, you don't get this life by being the best or greatest or smartest or strongest. You don't have to have seen Jesus in the flesh. You don't have to have been there when he appeared to the disciples or seen any of the other signs that he performed in order to receive this life. This life is is not being held out far from your grasp, unable, unable for you to get it beyond your reach, but it's right in front of you. It comes through believing, John's definition of believing. Not yours, John's. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so the only question that remains for you today it's will you respond to God's call to you today? Young people, kids, teenagers, whoever's the oldest in this room, which might be Rick, he just had a birthday. I don't know. Every one of you, as young as can hear what I'm saying and understand, as you've sat every Sunday and heard one of our pastors get in the pulpit and preach about this Jesus, about his perfect life, his atoning death to take away the guilt of our sin and his resurrection, word by word, line by line in this gospel, God's message to you this morning is that these things have been written so that you, 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 you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you, you, you may have life in his name. I told my wife this morning, I wasn't, I wasn't sure if I had time to read this. I, I, I put a final quotation here. This is actually a quote from Spurgeon because I think he can say it much better than me. I'm gonna go ahead and read this. I'm gonna read you a small excerpt from what I think is probably the greatest book ever written outside of the Bible. It's a little book called All of Grace by Charles Spurgeon. Uh, you could get it for free if you Google it. Um, it would, I think, be transformative if you were to get it and read it. 
But in this little book, as he's explaining, as Spurgeon is explaining why he's written his book, Again, it's called All of Grace. He's trying to hold out the grace of the Lord to you. He, he writes, we're not going to talk about law and duty and punishment, but, but about love and goodness and forgiveness and mercy and eternal life. Do not, therefore, act as if you were not at home. Do not turn a deaf ear or a careless heart. I'm asking nothing of you in the name of God or man. It's not my intent to make any requirement at your hands, but I come in God's name to bring you a free gift which it shall be to your present and eternal joy to receive. Open the door and let my pleadings enter. Come now and let us reason together. The Lord himself invites you to a conference concerning your immediate and endless happiness. And he would not have done this if he did not mean well toward you. Do not refuse the Lord Jesus who knocks at your door for he knocks with a hand which was nailed to the tree for such as you are. Since his only and sole object is your good, incline your ear and come to him. Hearken diligently and let the good word sink into your soul. It may be that the hour has come in which you shall enter upon that new life which is the beginning of heaven. Brothers and sisters, this is why John wrote. That's why he wrote. That's why he wrote. And so I exhort you in the name of Jesus to believe upon him, to fix your hope on him and his life and death and resurrection, to embrace Jesus for all that he is and all that he's done and promises to be for you and to receive now and into eternity life. Let's pray. Lord, as we prayed at the very beginning, please do this. Please do this. You alone can do it. Do it so that Jesus and his name will be made great. We ask it in his name for his sake. Amen.